0: Matt Kim is disappearing well he thinks he's disappearing there's another Matt out there a version of Matt Kim that seems to have his life together he's more successful and beloved but then one day that Matt disappears just vanishes without warning, Matt Kim fears the same will happen to him. Can it be that being worse off than his double is reason enough to survive what his doppelganger wasn't able to? Matthew Salis's latest novel is Disappear, Doppelganger, Disappear, set in a troubling time in America in which a presidential candidate is endorsed by the KKK and white men in red hats stalk Harvard Square. Disappear, Doppelganger, Disappear is a haunting novel about Asian American stereotypes, the hopes and desires that make us human and whole, and what happens to human beings who have to become someone else just to be seen, just to survive. This is Book Public, a Texas Public Radio podcast about books, featuring book reviews and author interviews. I'm Yvette Benavides. Protagonist Matt Kim shares the facts of his life on the first page of the novel Disappear, Doppelganger, Disappear. His cat died, his wife and daughter have left him, he hasn't socialized in years, he has no friends. When he ventures out one day, he learns there is another him, another Matt out there in the world. Does this mean Matt is invisible? Has his own life been canceled out, replaced? Who is he then, if not the Matt Kim, with his face and his fears and his family? He's not afraid of having a double out there in the world. He's afraid of not existing, replaced by a figure that fits society's expectation of what an Asian American should be. Matthew Salis has talked to us about his novel, Disappear, Doppelganger, Disappear, and helped us understand the difficult history and context that inform this inventive and compelling story. Tell us about Disappear, Doppelganger, Disappear. There's this protagonist named Matt Kim and this world of doppelgangers. Can you tell us about Matt?
1: Yes, yeah, so Matt is uh, pretty depressed. He believes that he is disappearing, and the evidence for this is that most of the people in his life that he loves left him behind, uh, mainly because he is not so great at communicating and being like a kind of regular social member of society. So at the beginning of the novel, there's a kind of earthquake that happens that stirs everything up, literally and figuratively, and he ends up finding out that he has a doppelganger who has lived a much more successful life, possibly better life than him, except that his doppelganger has actually disappeared. And he's not sure why he then is still around when he has been kind of living a worse version of this other person's life.
0: So in literature, we see this this trope of the doppelganger, and we see it in film too. It's usually like a twin or a, a shadow or a mirror image of the protagonist. Um, who are some of the, the doppelgangers in literature that you've, that that you've read, that you're interested in?
1: So I read a bunch of doppelganger books for this, um, you know, starting with Dostoevsky's The Double and Paul Auster's uh, New York trilogy. I I drew a lot from uh, a very old Korean novel called Hong Gildong. And in that novel, Hong Gildong has the has kind of magic ability and he creates multiple doppelgangers of himself and he's like the king of thieves at this point. And so his doppelgangers go out and steal from the rich for him and they're actually made out of straw. So if anybody kind of stops them, they just turn back into straw. I was also interested to find a bunch of doppelganger facts from real history, such as the one that Queen Elizabeth saw her doppelganger right before she died. Percy Shelley saw his doppelganger out at sea right before he drowned at sea. John Donne, the poet had a visit from his wife's doppelganger as his wife was giving birth. And, uh, she ended up, she ended up dying in childbirth.
0: It provides a very fertile kind of theme to help characters, deal with fears and and anxiety. And it can be a threat as well, right? Like so the doppelganger gives rise to conflict in stories. Um, and it acts in a way that promises like dire consequences for the character. So it really ramps up the tension. what's What was it about the doppelganger in your novel? what What is it um, helping you to convey?
1: So my novel is about the model minority experience in which Asian Americans um, are seen as the kind of successful minority. And often in order to kind of live up to that or to use that as a positive, um, though this stereotype is always a negative, we sometimes take on those qualities for ourselves, um, such as diligence or um, quietness, Uh, success in in mathematics. When I was young, I was kind of like a complicated of myself. I mean, this maybe is the germ of the novel. Teachers would tell me I was good at math, and my fellow students would say I was good at math because I was Asian. I didn't feel very good at math, and now I know for a fact that I'm really terrible at math. But because people would accept my existence in that way, I, I tried really hard to be good at math, and I was in a way. Good at a kind of textbook math, though. Now I can hardly calculate a tip. (laughs) So, (laughs) so Matt Kim, his doppelganger, is another kind of version of himself, right? A version, a mono minority version of himself, who has done all the right things, who seems extremely acceptable to society, um, who is a helpful and useful member of society, and then. Has disappeared in spite of all of that, right? And Matt, who is trying to figure out how to keep himself from disappearing, at first believes maybe that his problem is that he's not like a functioning member of society. And so he runs the danger of just becoming this other Matt who actually does disappear. And so my question for the novel was something like what is a murder mystery if the person who is murdered is yourself, right? And and who murders that person if you if you kind of change yourself to fit a, a stereotype, uh, an image that sees you as as better or more acceptable than than you are as yourself.
0: Well, one of the lines in your novel is you can be murdered for your looks or someone else's, and I wonder if that links back to this idea about this model minority myth and the expectations that society has for certain members of society.
1: Yes, I I think a lot about the ways in which visibility has come up now and the push for greater representation and greater visibility, and how sometimes that means that it's a kind of erasure of certain other kinds of visibility. For the model minority, there's a big push now to desegregate data amongst, you know, the very many ethnicities that Asian American um, encapsulates. Uh, and, and by desegregating the data, we would find that some Asian American groups actually are, are some of the poorest ethnic groups in America, while others are, are more successful because of a, kind of brain drain phenomenon and because of who we let into the country. And there's a real difference between these groups that kind of erases a lived experience of people who don't kind of fit into the modern minority myth. So I think that it's, it's true that you can kind of be judged just for really not your own appearance at all, but for somebody else's appearance. One example that's really important to Asian American history is the murder of Vincent Chin, who was a Chinese adoptee and was during the kind of height of the anti Japanese automobile industry in America. Vincent Chin was living in Detroit, was out on his uh, bachelor party before he got married the next day, and was killed by a couple of white men who mistook him for Japanese and uh, were very angry that the Japanese were kind of putting them out of work, supposedly. Because of this kind of mistaken identity, or this constructed identity. He was beaten over the head with the baseball bat, and the murderers served no jail time at all. And so, this was a big kind of wake up for Asian Americans to see that we could be judged by somebody else's looks.
0: Well, I want to ask you, too, then, about this list that appears before the very first chapter in your novel and it is a list, it's an abbreviated list of disappearances. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about why you would include this list here. I think I can imagine given what you've said about this idea of erasure and this idea of um, being uh, at risk to be erased or murdered uh, for any of a number of reasons for being Asian or for being Asian Americans can you can you tell us about this list of disappearances
1: Yeah when I first started teaching Asian American literature and studies I was I was really surprised to find that most of my students had never even heard of the Japanese internment in which hundreds of thousands of Japanese were incarcerated during World War II for being suspected of of being traitors and the in the so the list is a kind of offering of context for the book so that people can go into the book understanding what the book is is entering right the history that the book is entering into and the context for what disappearance means for Asian Americans which I think is pretty different for for Asian Americans in particular um, for example the, the the first and and I think only group ethnic group to be, Banned from entering the U.S. by name and a law is still the Chinese and, uh, and the Chinese Exclusion Act, which in 1882 was a, a way of trying to drive out and, and keep out Chinese after they were used to help build the railroad. Um, and labor then was not needed anymore in, in specific ways. And Chinese became a kind of threat to, to white Americans. A, you know, a, a supposed threat.
0: Matthew, do you consider, or uh, have you considered, I'm sure you have, the ways that this novel can work like an autofiction also? You have these characters named Matt and a character named Matthew Celesis and and Matt Kim and Matt, Matt Chung um, and some other details too, of course. But I'm wondering... Uh, how it works as an autofiction if at all
1: I'm not sure it, it works totally as an autofiction you know the characters are pretty far from me I hope and <laughs> um, the Matthew Sales's character who comes in at the end and is a white version of me I mean I was thinking how do I really show that I have a real investment in this and that it's it's personal right that Disappearance is something that I deal with and that is a kind of realized thing, it's not just fiction, or it's as much as fiction and, and more than fiction. And trying to bring those characters in via the use of my own name was a way to kind of show that I skin in the game. Autofiction is a kind of interesting term in that it seems to be popular now, but it has long been kind of the domain, the force domain. Uh, of of people of color, writers of color, and in that even in, like, Asian American literature, many of the kind of classic um, canonized novels were marketed as, as either autofiction or memoir when they were really novels. Um, so, for example, Carlos Bulosan's America's in the Hard, which kind of defined Filipino-Americans for white Americans um, in the 1950s is actually a novel kind of filled with all of these different experiences of, of Blossom's friends and acquaintances. It's not all that happened to him, of course. And the way to kind of sell this to a white audience was to to say, these are the real life experiences of this person, right? And, and so Blossom himself became a kind of um, – marketing tool for his own work, right? Like they were selling him um, the same way they kind they of sold Maxine on Kingston and, his, and her novel um, The Woman Warrior or uh, and other books. So I'm trying to keep that in mind and keep that in mind as the kind of context that I'm writing into and, and think about how my book is not autofiction but can easily be kind of – mistaken for autofiction, or read as autofiction, as another kind of disappearance. Mm -hmm.
0: The idea of what we're experiencing with the pandemic and so many other issues related to it, but it shows how long-simmering these issues have been uh, for Asians or for Asian Americans. And I'm thinking about the, the pandemic in particular, and these hate crimes that are being perpetrated now because because of the pandemic and what people have been led to believe are the origins of this pandemic. So obviously you couldn't have predicted what would be happening in the spring and summer of 2020 when you were working on this novel, but I wonder how you've considered those, those things in your contemplations about erasure and about being figures, you know, people being mistaken for somebody else and basically being at risk, their lives being at risk just for that very reason of who they happen to be walking around.
1: It's another kind of replacement, right? The replacement of a person with a a virus. I mean, interesting the ways that a kind of person who's already objectified can can be switched in a certain perspective with with an object, right? With just this kind of I mean, not that a virus is necessarily an object, mm-hmm. but it, it's not something I would think of as having its own sentience. It's disturbing, but it's kind of another kind of incident or habit within a long line of of, of discrimination. So some, some of the images that came out of it, right, were, were almost like straight rip-offs of images from the 19th century of Chinese with over-exaggerated features looking scary and, uh, you know, dirty or, um, you know, in that case, often about to, like, take the women or rape and pillage or something. Mm-hmm. And so those the same kind of images came back with the uh, coronavirus, you know, in a really kind of fascinating way that shows that the history is never really dead or never really put behind us and that the same kind of cause and effect is happening now as it has been kind of. an American history that tries to kind of erase its history instead of actually confronting it.
0: But it's interesting that you talk about the word scary. You said the word scary and it reminded me of something in your novel where Matt is talking to his daughter Charlotte and she used to say that she was scary instead of scared when she was a little girl. And I found that not just poignant and kind of perfect, you know, because children do talk that, that way, but it's it goes to this idea of an Asian or an Asian American in the United States or some other person of color in the United States feeling scared but being perceived as scary instead.
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, I, I couldn't have said it better than that, I think. It really hit me, my daughter used to say this when she was really young. It it just seemed so uh, profound and also really sad. Even though she didn't really mean it that way, I could see that kind of, sometimes you can see the repercussions of, of the language we use kind of having these effects all the way down a lifetime. When I first became a parent, I was really afraid that I would screw up my kids and I wouldn't know how badly I'd screwed them up until they were like 35 years old and in therapy and making these realizations of, of how I had done them wrong. And we just hadn't known in all that time. Right. So I think the, the, you know, the language is so powerful. The language that we use is so powerful. The representations that are out there are so powerful and often like way more powerful than we even imagine. Um, they really do burrow themselves in there and have an effect that it takes kind of sometimes years of therapy and kind of peeling off the layers to to figure out.
0: Your character, Matt, says, I had been trapped by language ever since I thought it could save me. That's, that I find extremely profound. And um, I really enjoyed the ways that you use the language in this novel where there's a character who just kind of butchers idioms <laughs> or doesn't say the entire idiom um, or will use puns. Um, there's so much with the language. There's also this kind of epistolary thing with letters, with with actual letters that a character sends to her doppelganger. <laughs> um, so what what can you tell us about this idea of the obviously the the power of language can also be used for good in very effective ways and not just, you know, rhetorically positively, but uh, just in terms even of um, looking at the book on on the table right now, just in terms of the power of of a story like this one.
1: Yes, I believe in the power of stories maybe more than anything, um, but I also have to kind of reckon with the the fact that power and hierarchy is inscribed into the language itself. And so I think a lot about that Audre Lorde quote, um, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And the difficulty really of kind of speaking in this language that was made um, to exclude certain people and, and um, to set up a kind of power dynamic based on class and race and so forth. The, the difficulty really is you're using these words that already have meanings to them that you're spreading without even kind of knowing it sometimes. And I, I what I wanted with the book was to focus people in on the language that is used and to try to you know, in some small way, alter it. I mean, I think the best books, my favorite books are books that sort of establish their own language. Um, in that language, you can feel the kind of breakdown of established values and the creation of new values. And so with the puns, puns are so amazing. I think they're just like, they're tiny, amazing, funny acts of resistance and, even if they're not meant that way, right? They're, they're ways of breaking up the language and um, making it clear that the language is this kind of artifice. Uh, and so I wanted to, I'm, if I could keep writing the book forever, which is the thing I wanted to do at <laughs> one time, um, you know, it's always more fun before you're published. <laughs> uh, the What I really wanted to do is just make every sentence contain a pun, if I could just keep working on the book forever, it would just—it would just be puns in every line.
0: Well, you write a lot about craft, and you write a lot about the creative writing workshop space, and about the ways that craft and creative writing has always been this world of rules and artifice created by white authors or white editors and it's sorely lacking in all kinds of ways and there's so much that it doesn't address or take into account um and this is not a traditional novel either um disappeared doppelganger disappear so i'm wondering even given all of that did you get any pushback from your publisher or your editors about the book and what it does with language and and even your stance on uh, on craft?
1: I was very lucky to have one of the very few Asian-American editors in publishing, um, and I, I think this just speaks to the larger issue of of the fact that diversity isn't kind of a, a solution that only depends on a uh, state of mind, right? That it, it really requires people um, to be hired and to be promoted and, and and to kind of live um different lives and and to think of different ways of storytelling um, I didn't get much pushback thankfully, but I do write a lot about i mean I think craft is just another thing like language it's about the expectation of meaning in certain phrases and in certain terms of phrases and in certain constructions of you know, structure, plot, or whatever, right? We have a a certain expectation for things to go uh, the way that we've seen them go before. And we get a lot of pleasure out of things going that way or out of things that we think will go one way going a different way. And all of that is about expectation. Um, And so in order to change all of this, we have to kind of change the expectations that we're relying on. And that's going to just kind of require a lot Right. A lot of different a lot of difference and a lot more familiarity with difference.
0: You write in the acknowledgments that you started writing this novel seven years ago and in that time your second child was born and your wife was diagnosed with with cancer and died of cancer. And you say that this is the novel's context. You say that in the acknowledgments. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, it's it's another way I think of of trying to make it clear what my context is, you know, what the context of of the author is, which you can't really see so much on the page usually, but is so important. The author kind of creates this second self. It's sometimes called the implied author on the page through their craft choices. And that is never really, you know, encompassing, can't encompass the real author and I've tried various ways of trying to get the context of the book into the book itself through the list of disappearances and through that note, personal notes on, just so people can have some insight into what the book is coming out of, what the what the conversations I was having at the time, what I was thinking about and fearing and and living through. It was a tough it was a tough time. It was a lot of change. Those seven years were a lot of change for me. Really different lifetimes. And I think those different lifetimes are the context for the different lives that Matt lives in the book.
0: Matthew, I'm so excited that I got to talk to you today about your novel.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Matthew Salis is the author of the novel, The Hundred-Year Flood, and I'm Not Saying, I'm Just Saying, and the nonfiction work, Different Racisms, on Stereotypes, the Individual, and Asian American Masculinity. His latest novel is Disappear, Doppelganger, Disappear. This has been Book Public, a Texas Public Radio podcast about books. Is there an author or book you'd like to hear about on Book Public? Let us know. You can write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rizzotti composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.